Well, we have the right weather for this story. Uh, it's kind of a downer. It's uh, we 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 saw this coming last week. We we've been in this we've been in this conversation. The the saga, the adventure of the lost ark, um, long before Hollywood existed, there was a, truly a lost ark, and so we've been looking at the story of the lost ark, and. Um, the the word lost has two meanings. It can mean, like in the Hollywood treatment, the the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It can mean you don't know where something is, so you need a a plucky, intrepid, uh, adventurous archaeologist who can go find the Lost Ark. But it also means you just don't have it anymore. It can mean that somebody took it away from you, and that's what we saw last week. Last week we saw that the Israelites had had decided that God's Ark was really a kind of lucky charm or a talisman. It was kind of a rabbit's foot, and they would just bring it to the battle because they, they believed that they had God in a box. And the problem with that is that God is not a genie in a bottle. God is not a lucky rabbit's foot. And so God did not show up in that battle. And as a result, the Israel, Israelites lost the battle, and not only that, they lost the ark. So that's where we we left things last week. So the first problem we saw last week, which is that sometimes God doesn't want to be a lucky charm. Um, I would say mostly God doesn't want to be a lucky charm. God wants to be God, and God gets what he wants. So um, so the first problem is uh, if you try to put God into a box, he may not go. If he does, he's a pretty small God who can fit into a box. But the second problem is the one we see this week. What happens if you lose the box? Even if God was willing to go into the box, what happens if you lose the box? And the answer is you lose the God that you have put in the box. That's the situation in our story. That's the question that the, the, the uh, daughter-in-law of Eli asks. She asks the question, Ichabod, or in Hebrew, Ikavod, which means, where is the glory? Where is God's glory? Or, um, I don't see any glory. There's no glory to be seen. There's no glory around. Show me the glory if there is any glory. It's this, it's this, uh, uh lament of, of what has happened to God's glory. We don't know. I'm not sure it's there anymore. That's the question she asks. So, Ichabod, Ichabod, this, this name, means where is the glory. And um, I think a lot of us have asked that question. We've asked the question, we don't say where is the glory, we say where is God. In in, in Bible times, people were a little more reluctant to, to use the name God, so they would kind of speak around the issue. They might say, uh, where is the name or where is the glory? But I think a lot of us has, have asked that question. We've asked where is God? And I think our culture is particularly prone to it um, because uh, the way N.T. Wright describes it is is we have kind of kicked God upstairs. Not not us personally, but collectively. For the last couple of hundred years, our culture has kicked God upstairs. Years ago, when I worked for a big company, uh, we got this mysterious memo from way up in the stratosphere somewhere um, because what had happened is uh, some executive a high-ranking executive five or six levels above me had been given a promotion, and he was now in charge of special projects. And he had a title, and he had an office, and he had a secretary. He had no budget. He had no direct reports. He had nothing. 
he had been shuffled upstairs to get him out of the way. And a couple of months later, we got a different memo that said he had left the company and gotten a job somewhere else to pursue even more exciting um, opportunities than the ones that he was pursuing in that office by himself. So what N.T. Wright says in, in, um, is, that, is that our culture has largely kind of pushed God upstairs. We've put God in charge of an office and a secretary, and, and for the most part, not much else. So we encounter God on these kind of peak and valley situations. We don't encounter God as much in the everyday. So if we're in the doctor's office and they're showing us a, a ultrasound and we see the baby and its heart is beating, yes, okay, God is in that moment. If we're if we're out on the ocean and we see the most spectacular sunset and we're kind of overcome by by awe of of, of the Creator of who made all this. Yes, we, we see God in that. If we're up on a mountaintop and we just look out and we see all the wonder of it all, sure, God's in that. So we, we see God in these peak experiences of life. And we don't see God much of the rest of, of the time. Let me give an example. There was, a, there was a, something in the news today, uh, this week, um, about the Sisters of the Poor, um, which is a Catholic... Uh, 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 monastic order it's a it's an order of nuns and they've got a number of charities around the country and they lost a lawsuit this week they were suing um uh, for a technical thing about you know whether or not they had to provide contraceptive services to their employees and uh, you know whatever your position on that is not uh, really all that relevant they basically were saying as catholics we don't support contraception and so we don't want to do this and so they they're pursuing the legal process of of having this um uh, decision whether or not they should have to provide um, services, uh, contraceptive services to their employees. And they're, they're pursuing that. They lost one step and they're going to pursue the next one. But they are a religious order. If you tried to make that decision, if you uh, ran a grocery store or if you ran um, a, a convenience store or a, or a fast food restaurant. If you if you were an employer yourself as a as a private citizen, not as a religious order, but as a private citizen, it's not even a question. You are required by law to provide uh, contraceptive services to your employees, and you can argue the merits of that law or not. But but it illustrates it illustrates this distinction we have between us as private citizens and us as religious people. So there is one way of understanding the sisters of the poor. And there's another way of understanding us as individuals. We have the freedom in our country to have God in our lives on Sundays and in the privacy of our own home. But the idea that God would be part of our lives out in the world is something our culture is pretty uncomfortable with. Our culture says, look, you keep your God stuff to yourself. You put God in charge of that office with the secretary and everything will be fine. And as a result, all we encounter God in our culture is those peak moments, the peaks and, of course, the troughs, the times when we say, like the person in the story, where is God? Where was God? Where was God when my parents were getting divorced? Where was God when my best friend was dying of cancer? 
Where was God when those kids at my son's high school got in the car that night and they drove out to have some fun and they got in an accident and they all died? Where was God? We see God increasingly in our society only at these peaks and valleys because we've promoted God out of our everyday life. So even more than the people in our story, we're left with the question, where is God? Show me God. You know, when I began this this series a couple of uh, a month, uh, two months ago, I was planning this series out, and I was thinking to myself, the, the whole idea here, kind of lighthearted summer thing, you know, the, the lost ark, it's kind of a lighthearted thing, and maybe we could just have some fun this summer, learn a little bit of the Bible that we're not as familiar with. It'd be a fun thing to do. And as I was planning it out, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should just skip over this passage because it's a downer. No one wants a downer. I don't want a downer. But as I began doing the preparation for this series, I thought to myself, you know, this is probably actually the best time to talk about this because we deal with these problems all the time. And maybe if we could just talk about them when we're not actually in the middle, then we'd know what to think. We'd know what our faith teaches us when we're actually in the middle of a problem. So what I want to do is I want to look at the second half of 1 Samuel 4, what happens when the lost ark is taken away, or the, the not yet lost ark is lost. What happens when the glory departs Israel? So let's take a look at this passage, starting in verse 12. It says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. I, I, I know many of you are familiar with the, the origin of the word marathon. There was some Greek battle back in the olden days, and uh, it was the Battle of Marathon. And after the battle, uh, one of the people ran from the battle to the, to the nearby town and said the results of the battle. And it was 23.6 miles or whatever it is. It was the original first marathon. And something like that happened here as well. Somebody has run 20-odd miles from the, from the battle to Shiloh to tell people what has happened, um, this great military disaster that is Taken place. So he came to Shiloh the same day. He ran all the way from the battle site to Shiloh, and his clothes are torn, and earth is upon his head. Clothes to, in those days, you would rend your clothing. You would, you'd make a public sign that you had, you were in distress. You'd throw dirt on your head. And so he's, he's making every sign for his culture that, that there's been a disaster. And so he runs all the way to Shiloh. And when he arrives, Eli is sitting upon his seat. He's got a, he's got a high seat. Um, because he's the judge, and so people would bring cases, and then everyone could see what he had to say. Um, he's got a seat by the gate. He's sta- he's sitting there because his heart trembled for the ark of God. As we saw last week, they had come for the ark. They wanted to bring God into the battle, even if God didn't want to come. They were going to fetch the ark, and that would force God to be part of this battle. And he's apparently got misgivings about the wisdom of that strategy. So he's waiting there, waiting for news. His heart trembles for the ark of God. It says he's watching, but we find out his vision's not good. So the man runs right by him. He doesn't intercept him. He just He's just sitting there, and the man runs by. And the man tells the city, and the city cries out. And then Eli realizes the guy has gone by, and he says, What's the uproar? And the man says, he tells Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and he couldn't see. So um, the man tells him, I've just come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And Eli says, How did it go? Probably not the smartest question Eli's ever asked. If a man tells you that I fled from the battle, 
that probably doesn't mean it was a success. So he repeats it. He says, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great slaughter among the troops. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And it's when he mentions the ark of God, not not his two sons being killed. When he mentions the ark of God, Eli falls over backwards and his neck is broken and he died for he was old and he was heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. And then the scene shifts. There's one tragedy, but before we can even, before we can even process that, the scene shifts to another. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the ark of God was captured, her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her labor pains overwhelmed her. Uh, the news was so distressing to her, she goes into labor. And it says she bowed, that's, I read, I, I learned things, um, I read, I read this week. In, the, in that culture, the way women gave birth was they'd kind of squat and they'd let gravity help them out. So um, I don't know about that. I would prefer an epidural, but um, that's me. All right. Uh, so it says, as she was about to die, we hear that uh, it's a difficult delivery and she's, she's dying. And the women attend her said to her, do not be afraid for you've born a son. And if you're thinking, that sounds kind of sexist, it is. We don't even find this woman's name. That's the culture she's part of. Um, it really doesn't matter if you're dying because you have born a son. But she refuses to be jollied. It says, she did not answer or give heed. And she named the child Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father and honor and husband. And then in case we missed it, the writer repeats it. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, the writer knows what's coming. He's going to tell us what goes on in chapter 5 and 6, and we're going to hear that, and it's much more lighthearted, and I hope you come back for that. But right now, the writer wants us to just sit on this for a minute. He's told us two tragedies. Now, he prepared us for Hophni and Phinehas back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. We find out that Hophni and Phinehas are bad people, and God has pronounced judgment on them. And presumably, what takes place in this battle is part of that judgment. God says Hophni and Phinehas are going to die. But Eli didn't do anything wrong. Eli's daughter-in-law, she did nothing wrong. There's just tragedy. They've done nothing. They love God. They care about God's ark. And they die anyway. It's a downer. And the writer wants it to be. The writer wants us to camp out here and think about what this means. So I'm going to give you three observations and then two applications. So my observations are this. The first observation is that nothing in the Bible says your life is going to be pain-free or problem-free. You know, there's a guy on TV who says, if you believe hard enough and if you send him a check your life will be pain-free and problem-free. And he's lying, because the Bible says that's not true. If you turn all the way to page 3 in the Bible, God says, you know, because of what has happened here, because my plan for creation has been, has been broken, things are going to be hard. Jesus tells his followers, he says, he says, those of you who hear my words and put them into practice are going to be like a man who builds his house on rock. He says, the rain came down 
and the floods went up. Jesus says, it's going to rain. There's going to be floods in your life. But your house will stand. But he never says, it's always going to be sunny. Jesus tells his followers, he says, in this world you will have trouble. He says, now I have overcome the world. I have put things in motion that are inevitable to correct everything that's wrong with the world. But it has not yet been realized. Jesus says, we will have trouble in the world. And the guy on TV who says you won't, he's lying. Nothing in the Bible says we get a pass. And we say, but I'm a good person. Well, so is Eli. So is Phineas's wife. People suffer. Why? Is it because they sinned? There's nothing in the Bible to tell us that. There's just hard things in this world because the, the, the thing that God is doing to fix it has not yet been fully realized. So the first thing is there is no pain-free, no problem-free. But the second observation is this. We're not alone. If, if you say to yourself, why did this happen? Where was God when this happened? You're not the first person to ask that question. 3,000 years ago, people were asking that question. One of the reasons God calls us into community is so we can be around others who know what we're going through. Or so we can be around them when they're going through it and we can minister to them. Because this is common. One of the, one of the worst things about tragedy is we feel like we're alone. It tends to make us want to, to kind of, uh, uh, draw in, you know, kind of put up the barriers and, and keep people out. And what the scripture shows us, this is part of the common lot of humanity, is that tragedy happens and it's not just to us, it's to everyone. But we know more than that because the scriptures tell us that God has experienced tragedy. The Father knows what it is to lose a son. And Jesus knows what it is to face violence and injustice and abandonment. So we don't have to reach for the platitudes. When there's tragedy in our lives, we don't have to say, well, God wanted an angel. Or to say that somehow, you know, someday we'll look back on this and we'll thank God when we see it from his perspective. We don't have to go there because we can go someplace that's more powerful, which is to say, God knows what I'm going through. God doesn't just see it. God has experienced it. God knows what it is to lose someone. God knows what it is to face injustice and persecution. And finally, a third observation. Even in the midst of tragedy, there is a hint that God is still at work. Even in this two-act tragedy, Eli dying and then his daughter-in-law, there is life. And that's a reminder to those of us who believe in the resurrection that God is a God of resurrection. This son, Ichabod, he only appears one other place in the Bible. We don't know anything about his story except he's got a brother because somebody is described as Ichabod's brother. That's all we know about him. But we know that even in tragedy, even in sorrow and suffering, there is new life. And I believe that that points to what God is really at work in the world, bringing resurrection into 
the world. So, how do we apply this? What do we do with this? Well, the first application is I'd invite us all to bring God back downstairs, to take God out of that special office where he's been promoted and only gets to be part of our peak moments. Let's invite God into our daily drive to work. Let's invite God into lunch. Let's start inviting God, not to the political things in the court cases. I mean, that's a piece of it. But how about our everyday lives? How about if we start making God more a part of everything we do? And not just those peak moments, not just those valleys. And then when we're asking ourselves, where is God? We'll have a much bigger answer. We won't just say, well, I saw him back when my son was in the ultrasound. We'll say, I saw God at lunch today. I spoke with him this morning. So let's invite God out of that special upstairs cubbyhole we've stuffed him into. Let's invite God into the rest of our lives. And lastly, another application. This is an application for us as a church. One of my favorite terrible statements of John Calvin, he's uh, a master of terrible statements. He says this. He says, the human heart is an idol factory. Let me give you an example of the way that our hearts make idols of things. I was reading a story about, uh, it's in the news. Uh, there is a, a Christian tradition, and the specific one doesn't matter. But uh, within that tradition, there were a number of churches that were serving communion, which is an institution that the Lord himself gave us. He said, I want you to celebrate communion. He said, take some bread, some wine, and do these things. And within this tradition, uh, they had said, well, we have, we have people in our churches who are, have a gluten sensitivity. So we're going to make uh, a bread available to them that doesn't have gluten in them. And they said, we're going to have, I don't know, rice bread or wheat bread, whatever it was. We're going to have special bread for people to celebrate communion so they can be part of what we're doing. And this religious leader uh, sent out instructions to everyone in that tradition saying, no, that they had to have wheat bread. Now, I will tell you, there's nothing in the Bible that says it has to be wheat bread, but the human heart is an idol factory. We can make an idol out of what kind of bread we use for communion. We can make an idol out of everything. We can make an idol out of the Ark of the Covenant. We can say the Ark is more important than the God whose seat it is. So I would caution us as believers to be very cautious about the sorts of things that we accept in place of God. You've all seen churches that have split over worship. It's just not like worship if we don't have an organ in our service. It's just not like worship if we don't blank, if we don't have stained glass, if we don't do this, if we don't do that, if we don't have wheat bread in our communion. So I think one of the lessons when the ark is lost is to remember that if we put our faith in anything, any part of the created order, even the things that Jesus himself told us to do, if we put our faith in that, instead of the God who stands behind it. We're putting God in a box. And the problem with boxes is boxes get lost. So, it's not a happy message. I don't think it's meant to be a happy message. But it reminds us not to put God in a box, not to make an idol out of even the good things that God has given us. It reminds us 
that if God is a part of our everyday life, if God is not just stuck off in some executive corner someplace, if God is a part of our everyday life, then we'll have better answers to the question, where is the glory? God never promised us a life that would be pain-free or problem-free, but he put us in community, and he reminds us that everybody else has dealt with it. He has dealt with what we're dealing with. So, where is the glory? Where is the glory? Where is God? God is where we look for him. Because, as we'll see in the next few weeks, God is not done with the ark. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, even for the depressing and and discouraging messages in the Scripture, because they remind us of the ways that sometimes we miss the point. We make the elements of communion more important than the work that it reminds us of. We make the ark more important than the God who sits on its mercy seat. We believe lies that you have told us somehow that we would never suffer. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us even in these depressing passages of Scripture. Help us to amend our behavior, to help us amend our picture of you. Help us to trust in the real God, the God who cannot be lost, who cannot fit in a box. And we pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.